What if our theology could get up from our armchairs and move into our world? That would be something worth paying attention to. This is the Armchair Anabaptist Podcast. Lay your guns down, down on the floor. There ain't no good in those guns anymore. Shake my head and let me kiss your cheek. And let our friendship be sweet. Because Mennonites have usually found that the way to faithfulness is to separate from others. You know, and eventually, if only I am here, then at least I'll agree with myself. And I don't think that we can say we love someone and then shoot them. That doesn't make sense. I always tell folks that, you know, look, at if you're in a debate and winning the debate becomes more important than reflecting love towards the person you're debating, then do the kingdom of God a great service and shut up. How do we encourage people to see nonviolence as something more than a position about war? Because we're not just sitting around doing podcasts and theology. We're actually trying to live our lives as Christians. This is a reckoning between you and me. The writing of all wrongs as we eat and as we drink. You're listening to the Armchair Anabaptist. This is our season finale, episode 16, The Quest for Creativity. I'm Kevin Weeb. And I'm Jesse Penner, and we are your hosts. Earlier in this season, you might remember we took a look at Matthew 5 and some of Jesus' words about loving our enemies, maybe his clearest statements about this in Scripture. Right before he makes these statements, in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, he introduces some very creative ways of dealing with enemies. So what we're looking at today, or at least what we're starting out with, is what does this imply or teach us about what it means to love our enemies? These stories about turning the other cheek, giving up our tunic, walking the extra mile. Uh, these are some of the stories that have uh, are most well known out of scripture. Even people who aren't necessarily associated with the church sometimes use these sayings. But what was Jesus actually trying to get at here? These stories come from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, and I'm going to read it for us so that we have this in the back of our minds as we go into this episode. This is from the New Living Translation. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. We have an excellent panel of guests today and a little bit longer of an episode today than usual. We'll be hearing from Pastor Brian Zond, from Betty Priest, from Dr. Leighton Friesen and Dr. Terry Hebert, as well as we'll be hearing once again from our interview from Dr. Ronald J. Sider from just before his passing in 2022. We're going to start off here with Dr. Ronald Sider. He was the founder and president emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action. He was Distinguished Professor of Theology, Holistic Ministry, and Public Policy at Palmer Theological Seminary, and he was the author of numerous books, including The Early Church on Killing, If Jesus is Lord, and Nonviolent Action. 
We talked about this passage in Matthew 5 with Dr. Sider. He gave a great response. Here he is talking about turning the other cheek. Uh, before I, I, I talk specifically about those three instances, I wanted to say that Jesus is clearly rejecting what was common wisdom. Uh, he says, it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that was the very center of Old Testament jurisprudence, the very center, uh, not just of uh, the Hebrews, uh, the Israelites, but uh, uh, other codes that we know from that time. Uh, and in some ways, that was a, a, an effort to you know, uh, prevent, uh, if somebody hit, hits me and knocks out a tooth, you know, I knock out all of their teeth. Uh, it was a, an attempt to to uh, prevent that, but it was an explicit command uh, for Israelite Old Testament uh, uh, jurisprudence to say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says no. He's rejecting the center of Old Testament civil law, if you like. Um, that, I think, uh, makes uh, me even sure that his love for enemies, you know, is a radical sort of thing that he intends for us to follow. But the, the, three, um, the, the three examples, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other, um, uh, some scholars, and I'm not absolutely certain this is the case, but I think it's, it's very plausible. Some scholars say that um, uh, Jesus uh, says if somebody uh, slaps you on the right cheek, uh, turn the other also. Now you can't if you if you think of two people facing each other, the, the way you can hit the person on the right cheek is with the back of the hand, and that was what happened at that time, and it was the kind of insulting way that a master would deal with a slave or an inferior or a husband with a wife or so on. Uh, and Jesus doesn't say just accept it. He says, turn the other cheek. And when you do that, you have to hit with your fist and hit the, the left cheek. Uh, and that's, to treating, that's treating the person as an equal. So Jesus is calling on the person who's being abused to insist on his dignity but nonviolently. Betty Priest is the CEO and senior consultant of a mediation company called Credence & Co. She's an instructor in the conflict management program at Conrad Grable University College, and she is the author of the book called The Space Between Us. We also asked Betty this question about how to respond to Matthew 5, 38 to 42. This is what Betty had to say about that passage. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good question. So let me, let's just... Uh, go through these examples a little bit. If some people in that time of history would have had two co cloaks, their undercloak and their overcloak. If somebody takes your overcloak um, and the text says, well, then give them the other one too, it means that you would stand there naked, right? Because now you have given both of your cloaks away. And in that culture, if somebody sees you naked, it doesn't shame you, it shames them. And so it's very interesting that basically that passage says, go be naked. And with the recognition that when you end up standing there naked, 
those people who are seeing you, they're the ones who are kind of shamed by that experience. And there's an interesting example, actually, um, in that part of the world from somewhere in the last 50 years where um, soldiers were coming in to attack a village and the women went to the outside of the village and they just undressed and the shoulders, soldiers ran away <laughs> because it was shameful for them to see a naked woman. And so it, um, it's an example of a very creative response, also a very biblical response that made sense in that context. Our conversation with Betty continued and she gave numerous examples to illustrate these points. So in history, I mean, we have lots of examples of, um, if you look especially to Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., we have examples of very creative responses to injustice that invited um, the people in power to wake up to the ways in which they were harming uh, various groups in society. In terms of our, in our personal lives, um, I don't know that, we, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, we don't have lots of big examples from people's personal lives on how they turn the other cheek. But I think we can take from this Let's say my friend and I are having a conflict or my, my husband and I or whomever. Um, how am I in this conversation practicing deep, deep grace and also inviting the other person to see how their actions are impacting me, waking them up to how they're, being, how they're impacting me? Um, you know, I'm thinking about a workplace that I once worked at where a number of staff um, this was a group of nurses. They said, we can't, they were really struggling with one of their colleagues. And the colleague was, um, they saw this person as awful, awful, awful. And I said, well, have you tried talking to her about this? They said, well, we can't. We were trained to turn the other cheek. This was not a Christian workplace. This was just a regular old workplace. They said that they had been trained to turn the other cheek. And I said, well, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? And what they thought was turning the other cheek just meant lying down, so to speak, and letting this person walk all over them. And we went back and forth for a while. And I thought, I said, you know, if you, I taught them what the real meaning of turning the other cheek was. And then I said, if you are only kind to this woman, you are permissive. If you are only, um, if you're only honest with this woman, you're brutal. And so one of the things I think you're wrestling with is this struggle. You want to turn the other cheek, but that means that you're feeling like you're being permissive. And then you jump over and you want to be honest, but then you know you're being brutal. So is there a way of being honest and kind at the same time? Because if you're only kind, you're permissive. If you're only honest, you're brutal. So how do you do both of these at the same time? And I, I brainstormed with them. and Many things were too hard for them to try. But what they came up with was they were going to try saying to their colleague, if she, because one of the things that was happening was that their colleague was regularly putting them down. And so they were going to say to her, just this phrase, that is not a very nice thing to say. It was kind. It was honest. We practiced it. And it made a difference. It made a difference because once the colleague, they, were, they weren't mean to her. So that's, they were kind, right? Turning the other cheek. They were honest, also turning the other cheek. And when they put those two things together, um, she was able, it made a, it, it sounds, sounds ridiculous really. But when I met with her, they tried this a few times. And when I met with her, she was really awakened to something was shifting and she wasn't sure what. And I was coaching her through it and it helped. I guess the point that I'm making is, if I take those passages from Matthew and translate them into our regular 
day-to-day life in church or home or work. One of the ways of translating that is to say, if I need to have a conversation with the other, can I do it in a way that's both kind and honest? Because really, that's what Matthew 5 is doing. It's inviting us to be both kind and honest. Pastor Brian Zond is the founding pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and is the author of 10 books, including A Farewell to Mars. His most recent book is When Everything's on Fire. Pastor Zond also addressed these verses and talked about Jesus' call to go the extra mile and what that means. Yeah, that is very creative, what Jesus is doing there. He's not saying just don't retaliate. He does say that. I mean, that's that's there, but um, you are asserting your own agency. So, I mean, you know, th- this is real life context, some of this. I mean, they're, you know, the Romans said, look, if a Roman soldier wants you to carry his baggage, you have to do it, but it will, will be reasonable. We'll say you only have to do it for one mile, one Roman mile. And so that was kind of the law that a Roman soldier, you know, in an occupied nation says, hey, you buddy, carry my bag. All right, then you have to. I mean, he's got the sword, he's got the power. But the Roman government says, yeah, but you can only make him carry it one mile. When you carry it the second mile, I mean, think about it. I mean, just put yourself in that situation. So you're you're a Jew. You're occupied by this foreign military superpower. This Roman soldier says, you know, hey, Kevin, carry my bag a mile, okay? You carry it a mile, you reach the mile marker, and you say, you know what? I'll carry it for you another mile. <laughs> that just that just throws everything off balance, you know? Like, well, what? What? Well, you know, maybe you say, because, you know, you want somebody to carry your bag. I, I'm trying to, trying to help you out here. You want someone to carry your bag? I'll, you, you, you can make me carry it one mile. I'll carry it too. And, and you, you see how there's, there, there's a shift in the power dynamic, but none of it is based upon any kind of violence. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I can really... I, I think you just have to play with it. You see that, that, there's, there, that Jesus is enabling people to maintain their own dignity, but not through just the barbaric way of, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. You know, you hit me, okay. Do you like that? Do you want to hit me again? Go ahead. I'm not going to hit you back. Go ahead. It, well, that, that changes things. That changes things. Yeah. You you want you want my you want my coat? I'll give you my shirt. That that really throws the perpetrator off balance because they're ex, they're they're prepared for violent retaliation, and you know they're ready for that. When they are met with this creative expression of essentially love and forgiveness, they're not quite sure what to do with that. And, and that's part of the genius of the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, Jesus is telling this to uh, a Jewish audience. And uh, in, 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 the, in response to a... Torah scholars question about, well, yeah, but who is my neighbor? We know that God tells us to love our neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And I'm not going to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, you know it, but um, the real creative part of that, it's not just Jesus saying, 
I mean, Jesus could have told the parable where you have a Jewish hero, a, a Jewish coming to the aid of a Samaritan victim. And say, oh, you know, can, can, can we Jews treat our, you know, our vilified enemy, the Samaritans, with love? But, you know, Jesus could have told that way, and you kind of get, okay, that's, that's, that's something to aspire to. But Jesus does something much more subversive. He casts the Samaritan as the one who is showing unconditional love. And so the question really becomes, what are you going to do when your enemy loves you? That, that's even more, that, that's more creative than just saying love your enemy. You turn it, Jesus is taking it a step further and really messing with people saying, what are you going to do when your enemy loves you? How are you going to respond to that? <laughs> Dr. Leighton Friesen is academic dean at Steinbeck Bible College and the author of the book Secular Nonviolence and the Theodrama of Peace. While our first several panelists addressed these verses, they had a pretty similar idea about what Jesus was getting at and this sort of subversive action that was taken through them. Dr. Friesen had some pushback on this idea. Yeah, so there's been a fair bit of discussion about this in Mennonite theology in the last 50 years. Um, because I think, I think what we have tried to do in Mennonite theology is get away from anything that looks like passivity, anything that looks like we're just asking people to be doormats and be abused and whatever. So Mennonites have tried to try to understand loving your enemies in ways that are more active, that are more assertive, and that are more um, conducive to the dignity of, of human beings. And I think that's a that's a that's a good thing. I have a bit of a, a, a bone to pick with some of the ways in which that has been done. Um, there's, there's one scholar uh, by the name of Walter Wink who has made arguments like this. And in some ways, this is a very attractive way of um, interpreting Jesus' words. I haven't been completely convinced by Walter Wink on this. Um, I'm just not sure that we know that much about social customs in the, in the Middle East at that time that we know exactly what was meant by a slap with the right hand or a punch with the left and so forth. And then in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus makes these same, this same statement, he doesn't, he, he doesn't use anything about the right hand or the left. He just says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Which leads me to believe that Luke did not see this as referring to certain understandings in, in the culture about left-handed slaps and right-handed insults and so forth. But what I think we can take from this passage is, is that the, the, that the translation that we have, I, I think it's from the King James, where it says, do not resist the evildoer. That probably doesn't capture what Jesus is getting at here. Later on in, in Matthew 18, for example, Jesus is going to give very explicit instructions about how to resist an evildoer through, uh, through the method that he gives there. What I think he likely means here in Matthew 5.39 would be better translated, do not set yourselves against an evildoer, or do not take revenge on an evildoer, or do not repay evil with evil, which is kind of how Paul 
uh, translates Jesus' words. Do not repay evil with evil. And so I think the idea that Jesus is getting at here is don't use the same evil strategies that you see your abuser using. Don't use those same evil strategies to get even with your abuser. Don't sink to your, abuse, your abuser's level of, of evil. And I think the temptation is always to fight fire with fire, to use violence to resist violence. But I think Jesus is saying, do not use evil to overcome evil. Now, the further thing that I would say about this, and this, and this is just a general statement about a lot of Jesus' instructions to what we would call maybe uh, weaker groups or minority groups or oppressed groups in, in the Bible. And this goes for uh, Paul's teachings as well as Jesus' teachings, is that when Jesus addresses someone like a slave or someone who's being abused, or when Paul talks about slaves or about women or about people who are being persecuted by the Roman government, when he addresses them, he is addressing them as moral agents who are capable of making decisions. And so when Jesus is here addressing uh, a person who is being struck or a person who is being robbed, he's actually addressing them as somebody who can make moral choices, who actually has some agency, some freedom, some ability to chart their path here in terms of how they're going to respond. And that's giving dignity to, to somebody who is being abused. It's saying you're not a complete doormat here. You're not a complete, you know, victim here who can't do anything and poor you. No, you have the dignity, you have the, uh, the a certain amount of power and humanity within yourself. You can make some choices and those choices will show that you are my disciple. And so I think that is how Jesus gives dignity to the people who are being oppressed here. Um, simply by asking them to do something that's just incredibly, incredibly difficult, that can only be done with the power of, of God's Spirit within them. Um, that would be how I understand that, that passage. As we discussed this passage in Matthew 5 with Dr. Sider, it seemed to suggest that when we respond to violence, Jesus is asking us to respond in creative ways. I asked Dr. Sider if he thought we lacked that same creativity today. This is what he had to say. Well, I think uh, the many examples that I talk about in my book, Nonviolent Action, whether it's uh, the Poles fighting communist dictatorship or uh, the Filipinos, um, um, you know, fighting Marcos uh, with nonviolence uh, or Gandhi uh, or Martin Luther King, uh, they're using creative ways to insist on their dignity uh, and insist on what the um, government, um, the dictator, or whatever the people in power are doing is wrong, but doing it while they still uh, love that enemy. So I think um, the whole spirit of nonviolent direct action um, fits with what I suggested is probably Jesus' interpretation of those, Jesus' statement about those three cases. Dr. Terry Hebert is the president of Steinbeck Bible College, and in our conversation with him, he talked about how sometimes when we get into these conversations, it can be difficult for people to just talk about theology or ideas, and how sometimes talking about stories is much more powerful. This is the story that Dr. Hebert shared. And so in, in class, I, I pull out a, a TED Talk uh, by Jeffrey Brown um, on the Boston Miracle. I've, I love that one. Um, 
Jeffrey Brown was a young pastor in a crime-ridden community with lots of drugs, violence, um, and youth dying regularly. Um, and he was personally affected as, by the death of a couple of young uh, teenagers, I think, in his community. And he was doing funerals for these kids and go like, what in the world should I be doing here? And uh, some might react to say, well, we should just get tough on crime and, and put more people in prison. You know, if, they, if they're in prison, then at least let's clean up the streets and that's how we do it. But Jeffrey decided that uh, he was going to, he didn't say this, but that he was going to imitate Christ and he was going to show compassion and mercy and he was going to love his enemy. And uh, he discovered that uh, most of the crime took place at night. But most of his ministry in the church was, of course, during the daytime. So he decided, decided to start working the street, uh, walking the streets at night uh, simply to get to know the youth in the community. And uh, at first they thought the guy in the collar was quite suspicious, and they were wondering, what's he up to, and so on. And once, once they found out that he was non-threatening, he wasn't carrying a gun, um, that he just wanted to listen, and he cared about them personally, uh, they started coming and talking to him, and, and he discovered that they had just ordinary, everyday fears like everybody else did, um, that they had really difficult home situations, and they had desperation in their lives that they were dealing with. And, and in a in a radical move, rather than coming to him them with answers, uh, he asked them what they thought they needed to that needed to happen in this community in order to make this community a better place to live. And they had no shortage of answers to tell him. And so he, he engaged with them. He, he had them um, had police officers come in and listen to um, and community service workers listening to these people talk. And they began uh, working out solutions for reducing the violence in this community. And the crime rate went down significantly. Um, and so he decided to share his model with other communities um, across America and they found similar results. Uh, the people he thought were enemies were the, actually the very people who were needed to bring about the solution and to, without even using violence or more police force or whatever. Um, it was, it's a dramatic story. I encourage you to, look, to watch it. Um, it's easy to find. Um, but it's, it's one example again of someone who basically gets down to basics and says, these, my enemies, so to speak, are human beings who have some desperate needs and that need, need somebody to minister to them and, and serve them. Um, I heard something similar, uh, from a ministry leader in the North End of Winnipeg say it. One, at an SBC chapel that walking through throughout his community with a gun was more dangerous than walking throughout his community without one. Um, even if guns are a last resort, if we possess them, they often become the next resort. If we don't have one, then creativity and relying on the Spirit of God as our first resort for trying to solve these threatening issues is, is our best answer. And I think Jeffrey Brown gives, is a great example. I realize that in this world, you will have police forces and militaries. Um, but we, we as Christians, as Anabaptists, need to realize that our first call is what God has called us to be first. We are called first to be the body of Christ. And if the head did not resort to lethal violence, gave his life as a ransom to many, then what gives the body the right to be different than the head? Oh, that was good. 
to listen to those uh, discussions and stories. I feel like we had great sort of interplay, a few different directions on these things. We had a little bit of debate here, really, over whether Walter Wink's premise that these verses in the Sermon on the Mount are kind of uh, subversive tools that we can use in order to sort of fight for justice without using violence, uh, whether that is something that's actually there or whether these are actually simply just verses to sort of lay down our arms and, and step away from maybe what we have rights to or what we're owed and simply love our enemies. To wink or not to wink? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> I, I think uh, so, sometimes I've wondered about that when I think about Walter Wink's work. Do we, uh, do we understand it that way or not? And, and I think part of it comes back to do we look at this as something that must be effective or do we look at this as simply part of our call, whether it's effective or not? Because if if it has to be effective, then then of course something about uh, seeing how it will you know subvert injustice and restore dignity will really help us to understand the why behind it, you know, and will help us to be creative in in different ways in the here and now. Um, if it's more so about faithfulness, then then it's not quite as um, important that, that that kind of perspective is right. Then we're going to be doing this, even if we don't quite understand why we're doing what we're doing, just that we know Jesus calls us to this. Right. It's a part of the bigger picture of Christianity in general, right? It's how much of what we are doing is because we think it's going to be better for us in this life, materially, here and now? And how much of what we are doing is because we are simply seeking to be faithful to Jesus? And I think it's clear that that needs to come first. Our first priority is simply faithfulness, uh, and the rest follows. And I think there's a piece of it, too, no matter which um, perspective we embrace, that 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 calls us to something beyond just demanding our own way, but that Jesus is challenging us, in fact, to consider the good of other people. That no matter what we're uh, situation we're finding ourselves in, and no matter if we embrace Walter Wink's work or not, um, that that Jesus is inviting us to consider not only our own good, but also the good of our enemy as well. In this, not only consider our own rights, but to think about, hey, maybe I can do good in someone else's life, even in this situation where I've been harmed. And to think about ourselves not only as someone being victimized by someone else, but actually as someone who can be empowered to do good to someone else in the midst of those circumstances, which is actually a very powerful thing. One more thing I think we should touch on before we head into our break and on to the next question is the power of story. This is something that came up in a few of the responses that we got Pastor Brian Zond talked about sort of the provocative nature of the story of the Good Samaritan and how Jesus told that story in a way that was designed to sort of uh, raise the eyebrows of those who are listening and really force them to grapple with some serious truths about what it means uh, to be a good person and to love our enemy. Uh, in addition, Dr. Terry Hebert talked about some stories that he has told in his classes and how often stories can be much more powerful in terms of communicating our values and what's important to us uh, than simply speaking about them straight up. If you're listening and you want to read about a lot of stories of effective nonviolent action, check out Ronald J. Sider's book that is called Nonviolent Action. It is a chronicle of stories from around the world 
where people made concrete changes in their world in ways that did not engage in violence. It's a great book that is just full of a lot of these kinds of stories that are, in fact, very inspiring. We'll be right back. our denomination, the Evangelical Mennonite Conference, there are a variety of different theological perspectives around this issue of loving our enemies. So as we close out this season, we wanted to ask this question, what is the bottom line? What is true for all Christians at all times everywhere? We asked this question of Dr. Ronald J. Sider, and this is what he had to say. If Christians believe what the church has taught for 2,000 years, namely that Jesus, the Messiah, is true God, as well as true man. If that's who he is, we simply cannot say, sorry, Jesus, uh, that's what you said, but it's too hard. Uh, We can't do it. It doesn't work in our kind of world. I think the bottom line is who we think Jesus is. and. If we are clear that the carpenter from Nazareth who rose from the dead uh, was truly God and man, truly human and divine, then we simply can't tell him uh, as uh, Reinhold Niebuhr did. (laughs) Reinhold Niebuhr said, yes, uh, the kind of, Total pacifism is what Jesus was talking about, but sorry, Jesus, it doesn't work in the real world. Uh, we can't do that if Jesus is a true God as well as true man. In talking with Dr. Leighton Friesen, we asked the same question. When we think about the, the worldwide church and all of its various positions on peace, what is the bottom line in terms of how we should think about Jesus's call to enemy love? He talked about the ways in which we're actually coming closer together on some of these things. I would make the argument, and and others have as well, that in the modern world, with modern warfare, there is increasingly less difference between somebody who believes in the just war tradition and somebody who's an out-and-out pacifist who just rejects participation in war. Um, Especially when you're talking about weapons of mass destruction, which is now increasingly becoming common in all kinds of countries. When you're talking about the use of military, or or sorry, of nuclear weapons, um, it's really, really hard to make the case that there is some kind of just war criteria that is guiding this kind of warfare. And so I think it's, I think the day is coming when, when people who reject 
all war and have always rejected participating in war, like, like Mennonites, and those who actually hold to just war principles that are supposed to chastise war and keep it within certain limits and only use it within certain means and keep it proportional and not allow it to, you know, kill civilians and all this kind of... There's, there's a whole tradition there of thinking on how to, how to limit war in order for it to be used for just means. Um, I think there is a time that's coming very soon when those two are, are going to come together and they're going to both say, if it's a modern war fought with modern weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear war, well, I don't see how any Christian who uh, abides by either the just war tradition or the pacifist tradition can participate in this. And so I, I sometimes wonder whether there is actually going to be more unity in the Christian church over, over war in the future than there has in the past, simply because of the way of the way war has evolved. Uh, it's just not a not a, a, a an activity that can be regulated the way it used to be, and and so that's maybe the first thing I would say. I think even in a practical way, there can be some common ground on 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 this. Um, but the other the other thing that I think is is common is that we all need to recognize, and I think all churches do recognize, that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Um, that is that is just the inescapable words that he he teaches us, and he gives us very few ways of kind of wiggling out from underneath that or evading that that central Christian teaching. That seems to be a basic Christian posture that he expects us to live, and and so I think that's where we can we can agree that yes, this is what Jesus has taught us to do. And we need to think, we need to struggle, we need to work at finding ways to, to do that and to make that come true in our lives. And so what kind of churches do we need to be? This is, the, this is the, uh, a wonderful question that I think people like Stanley Harwas have been pushing the church to ask. Like, what kind of people do we need to be? What kind of practices do we need to engage in? What kind of life do we need to have as, as churches that make war silly, that make war incomprehensible to us, that make it just un, un, unimaginable that we would kill our enemy. Not that this, uh, you know, will be eradicated from the world forever, but it just, what kind of a community would we have to be for that not to even make sense anymore? And that's what we need to think about, I think, across across our our denominations is uh, we all we're all against violence. Nobody wants killing. Nobody wants the plunder and the bloodshed and the chaos that war brings. And so, what can we do as churches to decrease the appetite for this kind of stuff? Because let's face it: in the last hundred years, much much bloodshed has happened in the war between Christians. Uh, between German Christians and British Christians and French Christians and Canadian Christians and American Christians and so on. We are the ones who have fought each other and killed each other by the hundreds of thousands. And so uh, even if Christians, uh, the ones who, you know, have been baptized, who take the Lord's Supper, who uh, consider themselves followers of Jesus, even if Christians across the spectrum would just agree that we will not kill other Christians, you know, we're not going to kill our brothers and sisters who uh, have been baptized and who are participating with us in the Lord's Supper and who we, pl- we plan to be with in heaven. We're not going to kill those people. Um, you, would have a, you would make a serious dent in, in the world's appetite and, uh, and capacity for, for war.
That's, that's what I believe, and I think we have much that we can unite around there. Even if, in the final end, we disagree on whether finally a person, you know, has to resist any use of force or violence uh, at, the, at the end of the day. And we will always have those discussions. It's been a vexing issue for 2,000 years, and uh, the Church has never quite solved that, but we have to keep struggling with the, with the words of Jesus and the example of Jesus and of Jesus's plan to restore the world through nonviolent love. Pastor Brian Zond also responded to this question, what is the bottom line for all Christians of every theological leaning? I think uh, we have to understand that, we, that the kingdom of God is real, that we actually, in our baptism, have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that we have a new citizenship, so if, uh, you know, if tomorrow, I'm going to come up with a fantastical explanation, uh, illustration here. Let's say, you know, this is a long time ago. I'm, I'm 25 years old, and uh, I have just obtained America, uh, Swiss citizenship. That's where my family comes from. I've become a Swiss citizen and, and moved to Switzerland and uh, renounced my American citizenship. And America then goes to war with whoever, and, and they want to, you know, conscript me into the army. I say, no, 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 I'm, I don't even belong. To, no, I'm, I'm not even a U.S. citizen anymore. I'm a, I'm a Swiss citizen. This, I'm making this illustration up as I go, and I'm, I'm fumbling around with it. I've never used this before. Uh, so maybe I'll leave off with the illustration because we'll run into problems with it. The kingdom of God has to be real enough that we understand that I have, we have pledged our allegiance to it. And if we can go through life with a dual citizenship, let's say American citizen and a kingdom of a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, without conflict, I mean, generally without conflict, well, good for you. Wonderful. Isn't that great? But if there comes a conflict, we must always give priority to our citizenship, which is from the heavens. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, you know, Pilate, he knows enough to know that lying behind the arrest of Jesus is uh, uh, religious issues for the Sanhedrin. Pilate doesn't care about religious issues. He just doesn't care. He's, so he gets, you know, he's a he's a ruthless Roman. He's going right to the heart of the matter. He says, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus says, "You say so, but my kingdom is not from this world. That is, it doesn't come from this system of violent power. If my kingdom were from this world, he says, my servants would be fighting. So we belong to a kingdom." where the servants of our Lord askew fighting. It's just, something, it's just not something that we engage in. Now, again, when I, when I speak like this, you know, I'll get challenged with this. Somebody will cook up some, you know, fantastical scenario and say, what would you do there? Well, I don't know. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is I'm certainly not going to enlist and say, you know, send me to the other side of the world to go fight people go kill people that actually I don't have any quibble with. I mean, I, I don't know them. 
they're over there. I live here, but my government says, no, we're going to send you over there. We're going to send you to Iraq. We're going to send you to Afghanistan. We're going to send you over there and you need to go kill those people because they're bad guys. That's where I think our, our kingdom identity kicks in. Was, yeah, I, I don't do that. So, but the, but the, the real issue here is, is our kingdom identity at least as real as our national citizenship? And I think for most Christians, the answer is actually no, it's not. But that's the problem. When we talked with Betty Priest about this same question, what is the core of this? What is the bottom line when it comes to enemy love that as we close out a season like this, people should leave with? This is what she said. I think for me at least, the bottom line is is just really found in that word love. And I want to maybe expand on that a little bit. In the 20th century, um, there was a psychologist named Carl Rogers who said if, so he, he dealt with, he was a therapist and he said, if he responded to, if he, if somebody came to him for therapy and he responded with judgment, change was impossible. But if he responded to the person coming to therapy with unconditional positive regard, anything was possible. And I think about that with loving our enemies, even, you know, in times of war is, can I regard the other with unconditional positive regard? That doesn't mean I can't hold boundaries, but can I see, can I deeply love the humanity of the other? And when I think about, you know, our warfares, small and large over the course of our histories as nations in this world, so often we go to the place of hate. We will hate that country. We will hate the people of that country. We will hate that leader, or we will hate um, the people who hate that leader, you know, who support that leader. Like there, there's ways in which, and we see this both in the justice community and in the warring community. Like we see this and those who are promoting war, we see this. We see this who are pro peace, peacemakers can sometimes hate whoever it is that's perceived as not allowing for peace in a particular community. The inclination to justify hate is deep within the human condition. And I think, you know, the at the end of the day, one of the most profound and I think provocative messages of the gospel is this idea that you can love people. You can see beyond what people do and see the core of the, this kernel of humanity in every person. Can we deeply honor Deeply love the humanity, the God-given face of human, the God-given humanity of each single person that we encounter. Provide engaging the other with unconditional positive regard, unconditional love. There's a saying that um, we change because God loves us, not in order to win God's love. And the same kind of holds true in our work. People change because we love them, not in order to win our love. Now. That doesn't mean we don't hold boundaries, right? Loving the other includes holding boundaries. Otherwise, we don't, like you just said, it doesn't help people to be their best selves. So loving does not mean we don't hold boundaries. But there is, at the end of the day, I keep coming back to this over and over and over again. How can I practice unconditional positive regard for this person, even as I pray for this person to be transformed? To me, that's pivotal. And I think that's key across the board. We asked Betty if she had any final thoughts she wanted to leave us with. Well, I was just thinking about this question that we were just discussing. You know, it's so tempting. It's so easy to be deluded. Um, we now, you know, um, 
the world is warring in Ukraine. The world has been warring in Afghanistan for a long time and other parts of the world. And um, I am deeply opposed to the war in Ukraine. And I know that it is so tempting to see the world just through the lens that I've been given and not to see the humanity of the other. And it's so... Um, the human inclination to hate and to self-justify our hatreds is so deep. And it is, I think, um, it is, um, it makes us vulnerable to being laughed at, right? When we go to the place of love, it makes us vulnerable to be, for people to say, you don't make any sense. Um, I have been listening, talking with a friend, a theologian in Germany over these last number of weeks related to the war in Ukraine and how does one imagine a nonviolent response to that war? It doesn't make logical sense. But he would say, as a Christian, he can do no other. Right? Um, loving our enemies doesn't make logical sense. Not in a human condition, not in the human condition that is part of all of us, which is so tempted to go to the place of anger and hate. And so I, yeah, I think it's the spiritual, the commitment to nonviolence and to loving our enemies doesn't make us superheroes, but it might just make us faithful. Wow. I can't think of a better way, a better final word to leave our podcast on than that. Amen. Our feature song today is by Dane Jones Hill, his song, Long Way Around. Hard to live in a little town Talk is cheap, but it goes around When judge and jury look just like your neighbors He had it all except honesty Went to church three times a week Or oh, good man in the worst sense I think the phrase is but he made a practice of looking right And fooled everyone except his wife Who saw behind the suit into the sickness She would have stayed, she would have tried She got scared when she realized The lengths a man will go to for addiction and the cops showed up around Christmas time And they threw him down in the snow No one cares about your sins Till you can't hide them anymore And the new year found him weeping On a cold county jailhouse floor He looked up when he heard the words Of a prophet in the cell next door We're all taking the long way around We're all taking the long way around Even if you lost your way Hold on, let it get you down Cause we're all taking the long way around Left home around 17 All grown up So she thinks as a girl Had better live while she's alive 
Mama kissed her baby girl She whispered it's a big hard world But I guess you'll have to learn the same way as I Took the job that she could find Said a woman's gotta compromise If she's going to get anywhere in this life It was more than just a compromise More like a human sacrifice And she laid down on the altar every night And the years rolled by like water But the night stemmed up the flow In the morning she'd pass by the mirror Twenty-one never looked so And looked her straight in the soul Said, baby, it's been a hard road But I'll tell you one thing I know We're all taking the long way around We're all taking the long way around I know you keep falling down You're gonna make Somehow, cause we're all taking the long way around. We're all taking the long way around. We're all taking the long way around. Fly on the wings of angels, or you're crawling on the ground. Crawling on the ground We're all taking The long way around We're all taking The long way around We're all taking The long way around Fly on the wings of angels We're crawling on the ground We're all taking the long way around The Armchair Anabaptist is a Theodidactos podcast, and Theodidactos is a publication of the Evangelical Mennonite Conference. You can check us out online at www.thearmchairanabaptist.ca and find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. A special thanks to our guests who have joined us today. That was Pastor Brian Zond, Betty Priest, Dr. Leighton Friesen, and Dr. Terry Hebert. We were also honored to be able to interview Dr. Ronald J. Sider in April of 2022, just a few months before his passing. And what you heard of him today was from that interview. Our intro song is First Communion by Dane Jones Hill. And our feature song today was Long Way Around by Dane Jones Hill. 
Our executive producer is Erica Fair. Our producer and audio engineer is Kevin Weeb, and our administrative assistant and wizard of all things web-related is Ruth Block. I'm Kevin Weeb, And I'm Jesse Penner. And we have been your hosts for the Armchair Anabaptist. We certainly hope that what you have heard today will do more than stay as merely food for thought, but that it can help inspire each of us to get up out of the comfort of our armchairs and translate into living more like Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this episode and this season for the Armchair Anabaptist as we have explored the life of peace and what it means to love our enemies. Stay tuned for a bonus episode yet to come and remember to check out our website at www.thearmchairanabaptist.ca to keep up to date on our plans for next season. Thank you so much for listening to the Armchair Anabaptist. Anabaptist.